0: Your challenges don't define you. How you deal with them does. So are you ready to recover from
1: reality? When I did hit that point, though, I was just like, wait, why did I want the pain to stop? Why did I spend so much time feeling so angry and resentful towards my pain and the collective pain and the world's pain and your pain and the pain and suffering and blah, blah, blah. When really this stuff is like, this is what I came here for.
0: That was a quick clip from this week's episode with B.S. Simkin. I kind of feel like I'm on a hamster wheel, you guys. (laughs) I don't know if you do. I'm doing my best to stay present. But we're in the fourth month of all of this chaos. And this week, it's felt really, truly overwhelming for me, Um, which is why this week's episode is so perfect. This is my third... This is our third try getting Viet on the podcast. There was just so many ups and downs, one of which was her house literally catching on fire. And this woman has been through so much and is just... So inspiring. Biet is a global meditation leader. She's considered the lady gaga of meditation, literally, as she combines modern principles, pop culture, and spirituality into her meditation practice and teachings. Biette has overcome, like I said, so much in her life, from the death of her parents and her infant daughter to the ups and downs of the music industry, as well as overcoming addiction herself. I learned so much from her book, Don't Just Sit There, 44 Insights, to get your meditation practice off the cushion and into the real world. And I'm so grateful to have her on the podcast this week. In this episode, it's filled with riffs on morality, getting sober, incorporating meditation into our daily lives, facing our mortality without fear, and what it means to be on the path of enlightenment. I'm so excited for you guys to hear this one. I thought it was truly epic. And with that, here's this week's episode. And so people often are like, have this, I think, notion, and it's a very Buddhist, you know, and as someone who practiced Buddhism and still does in a lot of ways, idea that you have to forego all desires, all X, Y, and Z in order to really have firm spiritual foundation. So I'd love for you to just like riff on that for a minute.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm really into, you know, it's funny because it's so appealing, right. And it's so seductive, this idea that we need to be so austere and to practice Mm -hmm. this austerity, but at the same time, like it just doesn't align with the sexual aspect of being alive and the romantic and the artistic part of being alive as an artist and as a sexual being, I've just, I don't know many sexual beings and artistic beings who are like, yeah, it doesn't matter what I wear. doesn't matter if I'm 40 pounds overweight. doesn't matter if I like never accomplish any of my goals. doesn't matter. That's not been like the people who inspire me aren't like that. So then when I look to my heroes in the career space I felt like there was just kind of like this missing piece. Like there was heroes in the enlightenment space, like Jesus and Buddha, um, like you're saying. And even Eckhart Tolle, who's like, you know, a big name in our our time. But he just doesn't look like he's like out shopping at Barney's and like, you know, kind of pursuing the fast lane of life. Like he's not like riding down... (laughs) Highway 66 with his girlfriend, like with a top down, you know, and on his way to like a five-star hotel. He just doesn't, isn't doing that. And so I just felt like really lost because I remember thinking, well, like I'm certain that I'm seeking enlightenment. In fact, I'm pretty certain that I've already found pieces of it. And at the same time, I'm like, but if I've found it and I'm looking for it, But then how am I going to do that without giving up all this stuff? And also like caring deeply. I feel like it's actually really hard to care deeply. I was very poor growing up and it took me a long time to even admit that I wanted to be wealthy. Just even Mm. admitting that it's also hard because how are you going to pursue something that you hate, right? Like if I hate everyone who has lots of money, why would I want to become like them? I wouldn't. And so when I was poor and I was really poor, like I had no money whatsoever, but I also had no idea how little money I had. All I knew was the sentence. I am broke. That's all I knew. Like I knew I could say that I broke, but I didn't have like spreadsheets and diagrams of my brokenness. Right. And so, and I come from nothing. I didn't have a nest egg. And I often also believed that the only people who succeed in life are people who either have famous or wealthy parents. Like if you're given that, beginning, like then you will. And then whenever someone would show me an outlier, I'd be like, yeah, but that's not like common. You know what I mean? Like like a Madonna came from nothing. And I'd be like, okay, that's Madonna. Like that's one instance. But what I didn't realize then was that it really is that it's about alchemy, you know, and I actually had to drop, I had to drop my hatred towards wealthy and famous people. If I was going to become one, that makes no sense. How was I going to hate something? And then at the same time, be like, become it it's just not natural you wouldn't be, if someone told you like you could have cancer like w- would you be like i can do it i will <laughs> get the cancer like no and it all started you know like it started with me making those spreadsheets and diagrams i had to get a spreadsheets and diagrams of how broke i was so that the sentence i am broke could be a visual image for me mm. and i could see what areas of my life that brokenness was depleting from was it depleting from my fun Yep. Was it depleting from my world travel? Yep. Was it depleting from my real estate? You know it. Like, was it depleting from the food that I ate? Yep. And depleting from fitness? Yep. Like it, it was corroding every area of my life. And when I could see what I wanted in those areas and what I actually had, I was like, man, there's a distance between those two things. And that's what led me to become wealthy. Seeing that distance, feeling that distance, feeling that, it's almost like a burn, you know?
0: Quick break from today's episode to talk to you guys about Osea Malibu, the original plant-based results-driven skincare line. If you guys have been listening to Recovering from Reality for a while, then you know how much I love Osea. They've been a longtime supporter of this podcast and I am so grateful. Osea puts your health and the health of the planet first with potent skincare and body solutions that are pure, safe, and effective. Osea stands for the four elements of wellness, ocean, sun, earth, and atmosphere. Their entire line is built on these four pillars and pulls from botanical sources around the world that create products that are truly effective. Each product is infused with sustainably sourced organic Patagonian seaweed and active botanicals that create a nutrient and mineral rich bioavailable base. This pure and potent base allows for their products to easily absorb into your skin and effectively bring about balance while targeting signs of aging, and skin imperfections. Founded and run by a family of women inspired by the sea, Osea formulates botanical powered products that have shown proven results for all skin concerns. I can't tell you guys how much I love their products. My skin literally smells like a spa when I put them on. I'm obsessed. Right next to my bedside table, I have their argan oil that I put on my skin every single night. And this morning I woke up with a few blemishes, so I made sure to use their blemish balm. Right now, you can go to OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com forward slash recovering for $10 off your first purchase of $50 or more free shipping for U.S. orders over $75 and free samples with every single order. Again, that's Osea, O-S-E-A, Malibu.com forward slash recovering for $10 off your first purchase of $50 or more. I think that, you know, one of the biggest things that, and I just talked about this the other day Is someone wrote a review on my podcast that had nothing to do with the podcast, but of me and my their perceived character of who I was and Mm -hmm. it was all about how I'm so shallow and how can you be so spiritual and like have a Louis Vuitton handbag and how can you blah, 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 blah. And it's, I just find it so interesting that we've really had this ingrained in us now. It's almost like we've, and we do this a lot, the pendulum swings where we you know we revolt against like the christian puritanical ideals and into this now spiritual new age ideals that we yeah. think oh well money is the root of all evil and ex- excess is what's killing this planet and all of these things. And you're not going to get any argument from me that we need to live a more sustainable way of life. I mean, no argument here. But the belief that money is the root of all evil, and I'm like, well, then the solution should be getting money into the hands of good, specifically, I think, women who really want to put humanity first and make them super freaking rich so that way they can go out and
1: heal the world. <laughs> that <laughs> so, sounds like a fair point. Maybe Jeff Bezos can get on that train and I, hand out some of his trillions, trillions of dollars. Apparently he's hit trillions during this. I don't know if that's true, but I read that in a post somewhere. So,
0: well, and <laughs> it just speaks volumes to our lack of humanity. I think what I keep going back to is spiritual principles. Mm-hmm. We get so tied up into the ideology and we lose
2: the principles
1: mm. in a lot of ways. 100%. I mean, I just, it's um, easier said than done. But also, I, I don't think this planet was designed necessarily for perfection. You know, so it's like I, my pursuit in life is very little in regards to fixing anything. I, I'm not on this planet to fix. Anything. I'm on this planet to be in a state of enlightenment. And I'm on this planet to share that state with others uh, because that is the only thing that I have found to be useful. I don't really believe in death. I don't really believe in life. And those two things are the things that I think make people crazy is the belief in life, so much so that they're so identified with life that they feel like they're clinging to it hysterically. And then the belief in death, which makes them cling hysterically to not only the fear of their death, but also to the imagined, whatever the fuck of the future, what happens after they die, like then they're going to meet Jesus, or then they're going to reincarnate, or what if there was no afterlife or reincarnation or Jesus, or there's no pearly gates? This is it. If this was it, are you really doing something with this moment? Or if, if really the only reality was the present moment? not life, not the 80 years that we get to spend here. In my baby's case, my first daughter, four months that you got to, like Mm -hmm. people die at all different times. There's no specific death date for us. But let's say you live a long, hardy life and you go 90 years on this planet. Can someone really say that you lived for 90 years? I mean, I don't think so. I really think infinity only exists in the present moment. And that is why it is so ephemeral. Like You either catch it or you don't. And I think a spiritual practice is uh, is asking, are you living a life that allows you to catch the present moment? Or are are you living a life that forces you to miss the present moment? And those are the only choices we can make. Yeah. As somebody
0: who was raised in Christianity, it is now really spiritual. And I've talked about this a couple of times, but I think it's so profound. You know, we always think about the Jesus on the cross, right? And he was next to two men. One was thinking what's going to happen to me. Mm. And one was regretting all of his past. So one was focused on the future. One was focused on the past. And Jesus essentially was saying, no, like heaven is in this moment. Like Mm. heaven is right now. Like I can achieve peace even as I'm being persecuted Mm. in this moment. When I think about that, I think about the peace that comes with it. And you're someone." who, like me, incarnated, if you believe that, or came to this planet and has had a lot of blows. Yeah. People often ask me, how do you remain so peaceful even after your life has been one shit storm after the next? And so I guess I'd like for you to explain that and
1: if you're open to sharing some of your experiences, to share them. Sure, you know, and I I, you know, I think a lot of people would say sorry to people like us, oh, Mm -hmm. that you had a lot of blows. But for me it seems very useful now, especially the pandemic started, and everyone's like, you know, worried about their mortality or they're worried about their bank account or they're worried about this or worried about that. And it's like I've already seen what's possible in this I haven't seen everything. I haven't had every tragedy occur. And I actually do believe there's that saying. You only get what you can handle. I do actually believe that's true because I've never gotten anything I couldn't handle. There's this part of Dante's Inferno where he's being taken around hell and Virgil is explaining to him how it all works. And he's like, why is everyone in hell? Like, why are they carrying their suffering around? They're carrying these giant sacks. And Virgil's like, oh, that's their suffering. He's like, why would you carry your suffering around in hell? Like you're already in hell. He's like, well, that's all they have. And then he says, if I put all the suffering into a giant pile and let everyone choose whatever suffering they want, they would all go and pick up their own suffering back and bring it back onto their sack. No one is going to go pick up someone else's suffering. And another thing to remember, and I'll go into my story a bit after this, but like is, is if you ever look at someone like a supermodel or a billionaire or whatever you may be, Mm, coveting, right? Like, well, let's use biblical terms, like whatever you may be looking out into the world and saying, oh, if only I had that, then I would happy, be blank. Happy. I'd be happy, I'd be satisfied, I'd be proud, I'd be successful, etc. And some of these things are unaccomplishable, P.S. Like, you can't turn into a supermodel unless, you know, obviously now we have a new idea. I think people of our gen, I don't know if we're the same age, but of up until a certain point generation can't seem to get with it anyway, though. Like I have never looked at an ad where there's kind of like a really robust woman who doesn't look like exactly what was shown to me in the '80s, and I'm just like, I'm always like taken aback. I'm not like, "Oh, obviously that's beauty, because I've been brainwashed for I'm 41. So for 40 years I've been looking at supermodels and Miss America pageants over and over and over and over till my brain split open. So I don't actually know what beauty is. Beauty was told, it was explained to me. It was said, you have to be five, nine and emaciatedly thin with giant fake boobs and that, 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 like those were the rules, right? So anyway, um, why was I saying that? I don't remember what my train of thought was, but the point is, is that I've suffered um, a great deal, but none of it was too much for me. And when I tell my story to others, they are like horrified, you know, like almost my whole family died while I was growing up. I had a a difficult career in music with, um, with the record industry collapsing right when I was like about to make a break. And then, um, a relationship with drugs and alcohol while being a DJ in New York city. And, um, during that time, I had a daughter. She passed away from sudden infant death syndrome. And after that, my house burnt down, which I thought was a big deal until my other house burnt down recently. And I was just like, I guess houses just burned down. Burned sometimes. down.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then-
1: um, Oh, yeah, just like, I love that we're laughing about this. Your second house burned
0: down. I don't mean to laugh, but we can laugh it's at funny, these things. Yeah. Because now it's like, you know, now when things happen, I'm just like, oh, here we fucking go. Like, it's like, you know, if people saw my reality right now and like what was happening in my life on Instagram, everything looks fine. But if they actually knew, they'd be like, holy shit, how are you like still functioning? Oh, wow. And it's just because you just do like roll. Yeah.
1: You're in flow. I
0: mean, that's kind
1: of the solution, right? I think so. You know, and I also, I mean, I don't think that I think we're being pretty vulnerable with our, with our social feeds, but I only share what's necessary. I'm not going to share things that are unnecessary. And also like, what's the point of me sharing a laundry list of things that are aggravating about the pandemic? Like, oh, I really miss lattes and I really miss traveling to like tropical places in the winter. And I really miss, you know, like having sex in five-star hotels. Like who gives a shit about my little problems? Do you know what I mean? Like the, the agreement I made as soon as this pandemic started was like, okay, we're not going to complain. Like, we're just not going to do that. At least we're not going to do that. And that's mm-hmm. been working really great for me. And just to like finish off that story, my best friend hung himself. My father mm-hmm. died of a heart attack when he was 67. And all of that led to me like basically being on the verge of, I, I didn't become a high class prostitute, but I was like thinking about it. And, and I was like s- full on heroin and cocaine addiction. And one was day-
0: that after your daughter- Past you were still in active addiction, oh, yeah.
1: No, yeah. I the, the addiction got worse once she it got passed it, kept away. getting okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I was in addiction before she was conceived, mm-hmm. but it was not, it was like a party lifestyle kind of thing. Yeah. And um, it went on being a party lifestyle, but not quite, it was never quite the same after she passed away. It turned into something much more dismal mm-hmm. after that,
0: yeah. So, in the midst of all of that. And, and here's the thing, just because we get sober or clean or better or recovered or whatever the word is that you want to use. I'm an All of them. ex-heroin addict, so I call myself recovered. Nice. Um, life still shows up. Mm. Your book was so much that of just this like, no, there is this deep peace that comes with this work that no matter what, like you can always tap into that. What was the decision? Like, okay, I've got to get clean and I've got to turn my life around.
1: It wasn't really a decision. It it was just like kind of a moment where uh, clarity, where I was using a tool from my book called divided attention, the art of divided attention or the law of divided attention. And I was seeing myself in third person via meditation. I was meditating while I was on cocaine and heroin. And at that time, I really had no intention of giving up cocaine and heroin ever. It was just like totally, it was not even a question for me. I was like, I love this stuff. I would never stop. And then one day I saw myself and I could really see what I looked like. And I could see the lie that I was telling, the lie that I was weaving. I could see that... My vision was, and I was 29 at the time, my vision was that somehow, despite my heroin and cocaine addiction and my poverty and my confusion and my like destruction of every romantic relationship I'd ever been in, somehow I was going to be married, happy, in a healthy career, and have tons of money somehow, right? And so when I did, the, I don't know, I think I just started doing the math and I was like, oh, this isn't gonna work. Like, I don't know what like up until then, I think I wasn't doing math. I was just doing feelings. And I was like, I feel good. So
0: you have this moment. And then did you go to treatment? Did you like go to AA? Like, or did you just go, Oh, okay. Now I've got to like get off these drugs. And like, you know, this plus this isn't equaling happy life, marriage, children, money, successful career, et cetera.
1: I had a spiritual teacher at the time and she was helping me. My, my father was this shaman. And he had saved the lives of thousands of people. And so many of his students gathered together and put like a fund of money together Mm. to help me pay for like a spiritual teacher because they were worried about me because I was a heroin addict and I wasn't doing very well, despite my father's like awakened status as a prominent guru in the Russian community. Anyway, um, I was seeing a spiritual teacher and she helped me. But she wasn't familiar with like real addiction, and so I did actually need to do addiction type work. So I did that, and I I really did it in like full like full force. Like I wouldn't for anyone who's listening to this who may still be struggling, but they would, whatever road you choose, like I know people who've gotten sober doing Bikram yoga. I know people who've gotten sober, you know, switching their lives to Buddhism. I know people who've gotten sober using AA or uh, NA or you know, there's like a myriad of options, but whatever you do decide in your meditation or prayer guides you. Like that's going to be the thing that you use. You just have to do it like a hundred billion percent, which means you have to replace all your old habits with completely new ones. Because if you don't, the neural pathways—it's not going to work out. Like if if you're kind of still doing the same things and going to the same places and hanging out with the same people, thinking the same things and not changing any of your daily habits, you're definitely, definitely, definitely going to use again, definitely. And- Two questions.
0: But I want to go back for a second because often associated with especially heroin addiction Mm -hmm. is early childhood trauma in some degree. Did you experience? I mean, I know that you said that you guys grew up really poor, which is absolutely an adverse childhood experience, but was there anything else, any sexual abuse, any mental health issues in the family, any other addicts that were? in the immediate family or anything like that? Uh,
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm a Russian Jew. So there's a a little combo there, which means I'm Russian, which means that everyone drank a lot of vodka (laughs) growing up. And it was considered quite austere and, and like quite dignified to drink. Drinking was like a thing that you aspired to become, a drinker. Like we were taught as children, one day we'd be able to take shot after shot of vodka when we sat at the table. Like that was some kind of accomplishment. So that was one. And then the Jewish side being Russian Jew is, means that I was um, through epigenetics. And if you've studied epigenetics, the idea is that like the grandparents, like in the grandmothers and the, these, of these mice, you get these traumas passed mm-hmm. down to you. And my grandparents lived through two world wars. Their parents were murdered by Stalin's regime, sometimes right in front of their eyes as children, like shot in the head, that kind of stuff. So it was a very, very heavy Very heavy genetic code to receive. Um, My mother dropped dead of pancreatic cancer when I was six years old, very suddenly. Mm. Um, So that was like probably my most heavy trauma. But then um, growing up also, like I've never been sexually abused and I've never, like I wouldn't even call my relationship with sexuality troubling or difficult in any way. But upon further review, when I was dealing with my own body dysmorphia and food issues, which I've dealt with for 28 years and finally recovering from, which is like a fucking mystery, but like finally it's happening. I was reviewing all this and I was like, why would this happen? Like I shouldn't have food issue or body dysmorphia. I was raised by this incredible man who like loved me and worshiped me. I was never, he always said things like you look so beautiful, you shouldn't lose any weight. Stuff like that. you think that'd be so healthy, right? But for anyone who's listening, like sometimes these things are hidden. They're not as obvious. So I wasn't raped. I wasn't molested. I wasn't abused in any way. However, I've had many very strange encounters with sexuality as a kid. One, my father was um, a sex addict kind of, you know, he was like the typical guru, like he slept with his students and, you know, so typical, so, so typical growing up in the sixties, you know, he was like super in that world. And he didn't think those things were, what's the word? He didn't think they were inappropriate. He thought that was rebellious to like break the code. You know what I mean? Like have sex, right? Again, that pendulum swing where we go the totally.
0: opposite of, this whole puritanical save yourself from marriage is free love and everybody have sex with whoever they want.
1: Right. And like no, no guidelines. It's like totally inappropriate to have sex with your students. And it's coming as someone who now guides thousands of people through meditation all over the world. I can't even imagine fucking these people being like, "Mm, you look hot. I'm just going to bang you. Like, cause these people like look up to me. A lot of them like, hang on every word that i'm saying mm. because i'm the one shepherding them into their awakening and it's so irresponsible to to take that and be like but aren't i hot too so anyway the, the point is is that he did that and he also objectified women in general so he said things like she's hot you're hot he would tell me that other like he was like any man who does not want to have sex with you is a crazy person mm. now that's like a compliment and i thought that was like super healthy but later on mm. upon like meditation and reflection. I was like, your dad shouldn't be telling you that you're fuckable. Like it just should never happen. A. And then I had a brother who was like, he had porn all over his wall. I found porn when I was eight years old, like literally found it and watched it as an eight-year-old. And then I had to listen to all of his friends who were eight years older than me sit around watching like the Playboy channel and being like, yeah, she's an eight. I don't know. I'll give her a 10, like numbering women, Dissecting them, being like, she's too tall, she's too short, that ass is too big, da 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 da. And I wonder why I have body dysmorphia. Now, this is not to blame my brother or his friends. They're such nice people and they were 16 and like they're just doing their fucking thing. But this is my, what I did with that information was destroy 28 years of my life by thinking that I was ugly, that something's wrong with me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and that finally, when you do the work, And then this is just for, again, for anyone who's listening who hasn't done the work yet or is like halfway doing the work, it's like, it's not always obvious. You know, I have a lot of clients that call me, my private clients, and they'll be like, I don't have any trauma. So why am I so fucked up like this? And I'm just like, (laughs) here's what we're going to do. Like, or they tell me they have no resentments. I don't have any resentments. And I'm like, you're an angry little bitch, actually. That's really what's (laughs) happening right now. The people I work with, I'm
0: like, well, let's really do a deep dive you know, let, let's let start, I want you to just skim through the first five years that you can remember as a child and, and remember, recall anything that you might have seen or heard as a child, like what were like the relationship dynamics and, you know, and it's profound when people come back to me and go, Oh, my dad always came home from work, super stressed. He had no time to play with me. He was dismissive. He never listened to me. And so, oh my God, now I find myself being super needy. And like, (laughs) I I repeat myself all the time and I tell the same stories over and over again because I'm desperate for someone to hear and acknowledge me and Mm. my, you know, so you don't realize it's often there's, you know, big T traumas and little T traumas and accumulation of those little T traumas often leads to so much of our, in quotes, character
1: defects, which is just really an opportunity for us to change who we are. Yeah. And I think the really sneaky thing is that what you're describing the little T traumas, I think there's a lot of bravado around big T traumas. Like I have been on the internet being interviewed. I've I've guided thousands of people through meditation and I'm like, they call me the Lady Gaga of meditation. Like, you know, I've got a tremendous ego and a tremendous reputation as someone who's really up to big shit in the world. And under those guidelines, I shared about my heroin addiction. I've like been at the CEO, you know, like fucking sweet talking to the CEOs of whatever. And I'll be like, my heroin addiction. And I'll share about my mother died and my baby died in my arms. Those are big T traumas. And those we, we, we bravado those. Like no one's like, don't tell anyone that you're fucking, you know what i mean. But we had the little T traumas we're taught to hide. No one ever said to me, you know what you should do, Biapp? You should totally do a TED Talk about that time when you tried to show your little girlfriend at the age of 10 how to masturbate. And she ran out of the room screaming, called her mom and asked her to take her home because she was so horrified by you and then never spoke to you again. No one says that's the kind of stuff you should share from the TED Talk stage. Or, But the weird thing is, is that it's the little T traumas and us spending all that energy shamed and hiding those things that make us so fucking useless. And and, and enable us to hide, 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 and then conceal with food or gambling or sex or drugs or bad relationships or whatever it is we're using. But Lord knows we've been using something, right? Cause you just, there, there comes a point when you, you either face this stuff or you like keep using cause you, you can't stop. You know, it's not like, it's not the ice cream. Ice cream isn't a dangerous substance.
0: I love when you talk about how you can be alive and active in meditation. You talk in the book about a client that you had, you said, see yourself on the 405, like driving, right? That, what did you call that? What is that called? Where you can like see yourself? Divided attention. Divided attention. I love that. Can you tell us about divided attention? Because I've been doing that lately and it's really cool.
1: For sure. Um, I do think meditation is key. But it is also important to have different forms of meditation in our pockets so that we're not like sequestered to the yoga mat every day, necessarily. I do sit for 30 minutes a day anyway, but that's not um, how someone might want to start their practice, right? You might have to start somewhere else. And then eventually you're going to need more and more and more and more and more things that are going to get you deeper and deeper into the diamond, right? So, but divided attention is a great meditation tool because you can use it while you're driving on the highway. You can use it while you're having sex. You can use it while you're making eggs. And let's just try it right now together.
2: So just with one attention, I want you to notice your body sitting where it is. And with another attention, notice the sounds in the room. And with another attention, I want you to notice anything beautiful in the room, in your periphery. Maybe focus your attention on one item in the room so that your eyes are on one point, but at the same time with your periphery, take in the visuals of beauty anywhere that you may find it. And then notice your breath, too. Notice your breathing. And then I'd like you to float above yourself with the mind's eye, with your
1: imagination. And just try to see if you could see yourself sitting
2: where you are. See your face, the bridge of your nose. Maybe even see deeper into who you truly are as a person. And try to do all of these things at the same time. So you're sitting, you're breathing, you're gazing at the one object, you're hearing, and then you float above yourself and see yourself. And then just bringing yourself back, noticing how that
1: makes you feel. That is divided attention. And it's really just, people think often With meditation and if you've ever met someone who's like really spiritual and I'm putting that in quotation marks they like googly-eyed look at you like they're like seeing you and only you and they're gazing at you and you're the one and ironically that's really fascinated attention if I'm fascinated with you or if I'm spending all my energy just looking at you I'm missing this component of soul because then I'm identified with your personality self and I'm like Look at her, look at her. Oh my God, look at her, look at her. And she's like, You aren't you. You are a part of me. We are a part of something very beautiful. And when I can use my divided attention to see the two of us, I can remember that thing, that one thing that connects the two of us. And I'm no longer alone. I'm no longer fascinated by life and trying to get it to do what I want it to do and manipulate it and so on. Despite the fact, but I
0: meditate every day. It doesn't mean that like real life shit is not going to happen and like not going to alter you. It just means that you get to come, you get to come home to yourself and you get to have a lot more peace, even in the shit storms. At least that's been my experience. A lot of people had questions for you and I want to make sure that they get them answered since meditation is so important. Someone says, "When's the best time for meditating, and for how long?"
1: Um, there is no best time, and there is no best how long. So the the question itself like enables stress, and actually, you know, like when I teach people, it really is a consciousness shift. So you want to be able to like pursue being willing to meditate at all, and then ask in your um, what I call the law of asking, which is a non-denominational form of prayer, asking your inner dialogue with your inner world, how long would you want me to meditate? And when, would you th- when do you think I should meditate? You have an inner knowing of when you, you need those things most. And um, it's really just a question of whether you're willing to be obedient, you know? And sometimes you're going to get Mixed messages. You're going to get messages from the outside world of TM people telling you it's best if you do it twice a day for 20 minutes at a time. Or you're going to get mixed messages of like, you heard Deepak Chopra once say that you should do it 21 days in a row and for this amount of minutes and like in the morning. None of that is you. And so it's really important to remember that like that stuff is all great to take into consideration, but you got to find these answers for yourself. Yeah. And that's the shitty news, right?
2: The shitting
0: is and the liberation. And I think someone put tips for feeling bored during
1: meditation. The question I would have for this person is, what is your resistance to boredom? Yeah. And why, why, do you, why did you label boredom as bad? Why are you trying to avoid it? Maybe resting into the realization that part of life is boring. I think that it's frustrating because they didn't tell us in the story of the Buddha when he sat under the tree for like 90 days or whatever it was, they never mentioned that he was bored for a part of that time. They just failed to mention that. And so I remember when I had the aha white light experience that boredom was like part of the Buddha's experience, I was kind of annoyed. I was like, why didn't they mention this? Like, now I'm certain that it was. But I also like, I just think it's funny because once you let go of this preconceived notion that once you become a Buddha, there is no boredom, then you can stop ach- trying to achieve some like unattainable goal and just remember that you're in a human body and you have a human mind and so you're an animal and the things that you call boredom are usually like a fucking myriad of feelings that you just do not want to feel such as sadness anger rage uh, shame discomfort and disappointment those are just some of the things but usually d- boredom is just a feeling that we use to blanket real feelings.
0: The truth is that while you might have moments that are boredom, if you're really going inwards, it's so vast, it's so expansive, it's so magical, there's no way you can be bored. When you actually start to cultivate a relationship with your spirit, it's like, I mean, like no acid trip that I've ever taken even fucking compares to like the vastness of myself and my connection to all and the universe and the different aspects of me. There's no way you could be bored in that. You know, it's just that breakthrough you have to have.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I hear everything that you're saying and I, I think there's something to be said for the payment. You know, there's a chapter in my book called the law of payment and it's not free. You know, there's no boredom when you're putting the tab of MDMA in your mouth or tablet or whatever, like putting that in your mouth is not a payment. That's why you pay for MDMA trips or ecstasy. I mean, that is ecstasy, um, acid or mushroom trips on the, on the other side, you pay for them when you're like, you missed two days of life and now you're coming back. Or, you know, while you were on that trip, you like felt like you really remembered the meaning of it all. And now you're back and you have no idea what the fuck to do with that remembrance. Cause there's no way, like if you don't have your feet on the ground, having a deep experience of remembering that we are all made out of love and that we are all one, there's nothing you can do with that information except for suffer. Like knowing that we are all one and then living in a world where our government runs America and like we're in it. no, 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 no. Like as soon as you come back, you're going to be fucking freaked the fuck out. Right. So to me, like the spiritual path is the middle path. And it's one where you do recognize that, you know um, that we are all made out of love and all that shit is true. It's obvious, because when you connect with it, you, you know that and you, you, you are that. There's no arguments to be had. But then you have to bring that to the planet, and bringing it to the planet means lots of shit that you don't want to deal with, like fear and discomfort and emails and spreadsheets and rejection upon rejection and breakups and, and d- betrayals and. I mean, this is like, you know, Shakespeare and opera weren't making this shit up. It's really how it looks on the planet. You know, there's death, there's breakups, there's heartache. And especially as a mom, like having kids is like, it's brutal. As soon as you have kids, you know that they're going to die one day. Like maybe not in your lifetime. And I'm not saying this just because I'm morbid and I had a kid die. I can't look at my daughter today, the one that is alive and is a year and a half years old, like I can't look at her without thinking about her mortality because Mm. I've never loved anyone that much. And I thought about my own mortality my whole life. And then I had her and I was like, okay, well now you still think about her mortality because it's like, I'm kind of over my own. So now I'll just think about hers, but it's like, it's heart wrenching, you know, even if she dies at 90 and I'm not there for it and she lives a very full life, which is what I hope for her. Still, there's something so sad about that, you know, that I don't get to be with her forever and ever and ever and ever, you know?
0: Was there more outside of meditation for you, like, that you really needed to do things that worked for you in healing these big T and little t traumas?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, meditation is not the only answer. I had to do a lot of external work, which I write about in my book. I think it's pretty well covered, but I had to deal with money trauma and I had to heal that wound and I had to go figure out how to make a bunch of money. Like that was my path. And everyone has a different amount of money that they're meant to make too. So like if you're listening to this and you're like, that's it, like I'm supposed to be a fucking millionaire. I'm supposed to be a billionaire, whatever it is, like maybe. Maybe you are, or maybe you're just programmed to believe that you're X, Y, and Z. We all have a set point. We have a set point with our bodies. We have a set point with our money. We have a set point with our relationships. We have a set point with our sex life. We have a set point with our parenting. And when we reach that set point, we feel a bliss, a bliss, right? It's just kind of like that feels good, you know? That's not to say, like I could even say, okay, I'm at a seven on a scale of one to 10 with how much money I'd like to be making. That means that there's still three degrees of separation between me and this like said set point. That doesn't mean that I can't be happy now. I can be like cold chilling on a seven, but that doesn't mean that I'm not like every day thirsting and driving and, and making that connect because I love to see the seven and the 10 meet. I want that in life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for me the real work was around being with the discomfort of my set points knowing what they were and dragging myself to them even if I have to drag myself kicking and screaming I need to be drag myself to my set points and it, yes it is a, it is a definitely both you have to love your life as it is but if you're 30 pounds overweight you know it that's not a decision for everyone to make There's plenty of women online that I see posting photos of their robust, full figures. And I'm like, "Mm, you look good, right? But not everyone. There's some people out there who are posting it and I'm just like, I don't feel that you feel good about this. I don't know what it is you're doing, but it doesn't feel good. Feelings are something that are really translatable too. So you can really feel it when someone is like, faking you out or faking yeah. themselves out. Most people aren't, by the way, lying to you. They are truly and completely lying to themselves. And you, yeah, <laughs> it has nothing to do with you.
0: <laughs> that and, is- and that's the thing with like all of, all of this is that, or I guess I'll go back to that specifically. And I've talked about this before, like, it's okay to say, I don't like being overweight. I was overweight after I had my first daughter, like by Mm -hmm. 60 pounds overweight, like Mm -hmm. that didn't feel good to me. And that's okay to say that, you know, that like, and that's, that goes back to the whole, like, you, can you be spiritual and in quotes, hot? Like, Whatever hot means for you, you know, like I, God, feel, I hope so. I don't feel very hot right now. I'm not, <laughs> my hair is like eight days old, it's pouring rain, I'm wearing a sweatshirt, but like you can totally be both things and do whatever. I think so much of it too is when you're in a tough spot, mm. being with the feelings, acknowledging that the feelings are there, sitting with the feelings. What is this here to teach me? And then in meditation too, like feeling in order to, to get to that 10, to collapse, I call it collapsing time or whatever, feeling what it feels like to live at that 10. Okay, so last question, you know, and we've talked about this a lot, but it showed up one, two, three, four, five, six different times on how to live life, even though there's so much personal and collective pain in the world. And I just really would love for you to sum it up.
1: <laughs> well, it seems like you and I agree on a lot of these things. So, so I, I'm imagining that you're going to feel similarly, but I, I just really don't understand why, you know, my whole life, I was taught that if I just played it right, if I just, you know, got enlightened enough, Etc., etc., I'd finally be freed from the bondage of pain, and that is also like a Hindu Buddhist concept that the wheel, the karmic wheel of pain, will be ended. And it really wasn't until you know finding what some may call enlightenment and living in a state of this rotating bliss, which is rotating, by the way. So, for anyone who's looking for like a final set point, enlightenment isn't a final set point, it's a rotating place where once you get to you're constantly on a beautiful rotunda of shifts and there's all you know i can speak about that some other time but it's it's basically just it's a shifting experience it's not all static when i did hit that point though i was just like wait why did i want the pain to stop why did i why did i spend so much time feeling so angry And resentful towards my pain and the collective pain and the world's pain and your pain and the pain and suffering and blah, blah, blah. When really this stuff is like, this is what I came here for. And I think also as someone who's very into like the celestial and the planets and like, I have always had great, some, I would say real remembrances and some imaginations of being from a place that isn't here, right? I can feel like I don't really know that I'm from earth, like whatever I really am made of isn't from earth. It feels much more like galaxy oriented, right? And so I remember fantasizing and wishing that I could be like on a planet where everyone was just walking around in perpetual orgasm like feeling like they were (laughs) tripping on ecstasy 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I was like, one day, if I'm just playing my cards right, I will land on that planet where I, whence, whence I came from, God damn it. Cause I remember my birthright is to be in bliss, you know? And it's upon enlightenment that I really did discover that suffering wasn't my problem and pain wasn't my problem. And that this planet, actually, there couldn't be a better planet. There couldn't be a better ride in town. Like this is it. If you can find bliss here, you're a fucking maven because it isn't obvious. And it's certainly not forever. You have to keep finding it and finding it and finding it and finding it. And it's all so boring, especially like <laughs> once you've found it already, like, wait, I have to find it again? Like, I'm fucking done finding this shit. And it's like, oh yeah, no, sorry. Did we forget to mention that you never have to, you have to like keep finding it forever and ever. Sorry, we didn't put that in the memo. We just thought we would better, better to share that information with you once you fucking got here. It's like, oh, okay. You know, and it's, it's your fucking suffering. And we started this conversation talking about that. Like it's your suffering. So if you've got this particular problem, like I remember turning to one of my, I've, done so much work on my food and body dysmorphia bullshit in the last few years. And I turning to one of my teachers and being like, I'm so tired of this. Like I'm some fucking, I'm like this awakened teacher. Like I shouldn't have to be fucking suffering with this bullshit. Like this is some shallow bullshit. And this person said to me, she was like, but this is your bullshit. She's like, this is yours. This is like your special bag of bullshit. And I was just like, oh, I guess you're right. It is mine, you know? And I guess I think that our imaginations have us thinking that I would have it a different bullshit. Like I would love it if my body dysmorphia food crap, which is now really feels very healed, which if you feel healed from it, you know that it's like an endless journey, but it still feels healed. Like, you know, there's a point where you're like, oh, I don't give a shit anymore. I'm just, I just, I'm, I'm good. But I didn't feel that way. I really, on the way to feeling healed around body and food, I really thought I would never, ever, 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 ever be free. I was like, I'm just un- terminally unique. I just have problems <laughs> that are just way too complex for any food coach or anyone to fucking handle. Cause I'm just a fucking freak. And when it finally got healed, I was like, no fucking way. You know what I mean? but it was mine. And I think that while on that path, we look around, we're like, I'd rather take that person's drama or that person but it's like, no, you wouldn't. Like, would you really want to deal with someone else's bullshit? No, like this is yours. So yeah, just deal with it. And this is your planet too. So like you created a planet with war and famine and like where 80% of the people make like a dollar a day. You did that. Like just own the fucking shit, own your responsibility that you created this little planet and start falling in love with it. The sooner the better because we ain't going anywhere. And death is not a fucking exit. So,
0: yeah. Yeah, I think that um you know, you look at so many I've dealt with so many CEOs that are fucking millionaires and miserable. Yeah. And it's about finding that bliss like sure having my like dream home on seven acres and my organic garden and my chickens, like that's great, but life is still going to show up. And I think that that's the biggest thing that I want people to really understand. Like in my sobriety, like life did not get easier, which is crazy to say, cause like between all my sexual abuse and early childhood sexual abuse and alcoholic, aggressive, violent father and all of Mm -hmm. the stuff and public humiliation and shame and going to jail and all that stuff, you would be like, oh, well, life is like good. And you hear that so much in the rooms of AA, like I wouldn't trade it. Like life is so good now. And it's like, (laughs) no, like (laughs) I almost (gasps) died during childbirth. Like Mm -hmm. I had a really traumatic birth with my second and then had blood clots in my lung and almost died with, with my first, I had the traumatic birth. With my second, I had the blood clots almost died. I had Mm. a pregnancy where for over half of the pregnancy, they told me she wouldn't make it once I gave birth. Mm. I had friends commit suicide. I've dealt with so many overdoses, my grandpa committing suicide, business Mm. struggles, you know, houses burning down, lawsuits. I mean, like this shit is never endless. The gift in having a meditative practice and feeling the feeling of the present moment is that it, it, that's the bliss. Like the fact that the first six weeks of quarantine and coronavirus, all of the shit happened at my husband's business and all of my brand deals started to fall through and pull back. And all of my finances started to look scary. Oh, and I didn't collect a paycheck for six weeks. And Oh, we live paycheck to paycheck. And Oh, how are we going to get by? And oh, all of the things and everybody still needs help, but they can't get to us and all of the drama and all of the stuff and all of the life showing up. And I'm just sitting here going like, but I get to come into the present moment. Mm -hmm. And in the present moment right now, despite the fact that out there, Mm -hmm. all of this stuff is still happening, like in this moment with me right now, Mm -hmm. but there's just this like, this bliss, this feeling that's like, It's so good. And, and that's the trip. And I kind of want to end with this is like, you touched on this, like the, where you're just not afraid of like death anymore. You're just kind Mm -hmm. of like, it's just so good. Like, and I want to feel that like, even when I'm dying, like, this is scary, but it's also like, so good. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I think that was the final surrender that I had to make though, which is that I I, I don't know whether that's gonna happen. You know? Mm. I actually have no idea how exactly it's gonna go down. And my biggest fear has always been that I would get to the point of death whenever that would be, like whether it be like at 80 on a deathbed or like on a plane going down. Um, and I would get to that point and I would be like fucking freaked the fuck out <laughs> when it happened. And really off brand and like screaming my head off and, like, and being this like, is not yeah! how it was supposed to be. <laughs> and like, that was my biggest fear. It was just like having this and it went on and on, like, honestly, until recently. And then I had this kind of aha moment where I was like, what if, I mean, I'm not saying this is going to happen, but what if that my destiny for this, as you called it incarnation, although that's a philosophical construct we can't mm-hmm. prove, But let's say for this incarnation, my destiny was to die while screaming my fucking head off like C-3PO in Star Wars. Like I was like, I want to die like Han Solo. Like I don't want to die like C-3PO, you know? And so one day it dawned on me that like, it may happen that I die like C-3PO, right? Mm -hmm. And what if that's true? And what if that's the final lesson that I get out of this life is like, don't freak out like C-3PO next time you'll get to do it right or whatever, right? And it finally hit me. I was like, I just don't know. And I I got to just let go of this moment because I've had this real attachment to dying in some kind of like super zen out way, like gazing into the eyes of my loved ones and like Mm -hmm. having like a band play, like beautiful, like music while I like pass away into enlightenment. And it's just like, it may not fucking happen that way. And when I finally Mm -hmm. like let that go and just was like, look, I'm a human and I'm going to die the way that I'm meant to die. Yeah. I'm open to whatever gifts God has to give me. It doesn't matter how shameful, how painful, how weird, how awkward, how bad. Like, I think that if we're gonna let go of our fear of death, we have to let go of our fear of looking bad. Because not everyone looks good in the moment of death. And I can still root for that, fantasize about it, work at it. Like, my work is around having a conscious death. But I, as, as soon as I let go of betting on it, like being like, I have to have that. Yeah. It got much lighter. Like it just got much easier for me.
0: Mine isn't, it's not even about the experience. Like whether you're in a brutal car accident or like you're 80 years old or whatever, it's just kind of like, it is, it is what it is. It's going to happen. And, <laughs> and I'm okay with that. Um, well, thank you so much. Uh, we mentioned your book that I recently read that has changed my life. Don't just sit there. It's available on Audible. You read it with your warm and lovely, delicious voice, which I love. I'm about to record my own Audible, and I just Ooh. loved listening to your voice. Boo. So good. I suggest everybody gets it. Where can everybody follow along with you and find your work? And I'll make
1: sure to put all of this in the show notes for you guys.
0: Um, I think the main
1: thing is at guided by Biet is my Instagram. It's a really great place to connect with me. And I have a lot of things coming out on IGTV. So you can do that work. I also will have a course coming soon. For now, the book is a great way to download some of my techniques and this work that I've been working on for 40 years. And it's on Audible. Like you said, it's also on iTunes. It's on amazon.com if you want the hard copy
0: awesome well thank you so much this week's affirmation is my ability to conquer my challenges is limitless my potential to succeed is infinite and so it is If you enjoyed this week's episode, do me a favor, head over to the podcast app and make sure to subscribe to us, rate us and leave a review. We have new episodes every Monday and you can follow along with us on Instagram at recoveringfromreality or visit our website at recoveringfromreality.com.